Hello everybody and welcome to the Media Beat number 15 and you know as I do that every single episode of the Media Beat is special but this one might be even super special because we have uh, with us today a guest uh, Dr Alex Connock. Uh, I've been reading his bio avidly and uh, just have to take out the highlights there's so much in there but um, he's a very interesting uh, fellow and that is pun intended because he's the senior fellow at the Said Business School University of Oxford where Alex teaches media and marketing at BA, MBA and executive levels. He's also um, a professor in media, AI and teaching courses including uh, media and the Metaverse at Exeter University. He has been shortlisted six times uh, for the Entrepreneur of the Year Awards in the UK, Vice Chair of UNICEF, Board Director of the Halley Orchestra, so he's a musician as well, uh, a true uh, 2022 Renaissance man. Um, he's here to talk to us though today about AI in media so it's a real crossover between the worlds of data and AI where I uh, occupy my time and media where Claire and Maureen do. It's a great pleasure to welcome you um, Alex, how are you? I I'm very good thank you, I'm really delighted to be here and looking forward to the chat. So let's crack on. So we all know Claire and Maureen. Uh, Claire, uh, media commentator extraordinaire and Maureen head of uh, media at Arthur D. Little. So we'll crack straight on. So Claire, um, why don't you uh, why don't you kick off and um, open up the conversation with Alex? Hi, Alex. It's brilliant to have you on the show. We're super excited to hear all about how AI is impacting the world of media. And uh, I think you've got a book out. And if I remember correctly, in, in that book, you talk about the different stages in which uh, in which AI started to impact the the way the way we work in media. And I was wondering whether we could start with that and a little bit of a history lesson. <laughs> I'm not sure it'd be a history lesson, but I think I think let's really start with a history lesson. If we start thinking, well, what have been the really big moments in the sort of history of the media? And they've probably been moments when a big new technology has come in and completely revolutionized either the distribution or the creativity in media. So you could go right back to the printing press in 1436 or the moving image in 1895 or perhaps the internet in the early 1990s. I think we're probably at some kind of watershed a bit like those, and probably equally important now, with something called generative AI, which I'm sure lots of the listeners will have heard of uh, in, the, in the 2020s, which is a tool which really fundamentally reinvents how you do creativity and how you make creative assets. So anyone who's been out there and played with um, something called ChatGPT, which is a sort of fun chatbot, which will enable you to write your A-level essays without actually doing any work, or who's played with Midjourney, which is a tool which enables you to create an image of a, a koala bear jumping over the Empire State Building just by typing those words in. Anyone, anyone who's used those will know what I'm talking about, but I think that's what we're probably here to talk about today. And I think there's a sort of interference that AI has now run in the media sort of creation uh, process, which is really worth just taking a step back and looking at. So if you think about the, the, the lifespan of any given media project as kind of a four-step process, it goes from um, development, where you just kind of have an idea, to production, where you actually make it, to distribution, where you get it out to a public, and then monetization, where you um, sell it or make money out of it. 
and you could you could use that sort of basic plan to describe how a film gets made or a radio show or a podcast or a, a computer game or any 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 piece of media school pantomime and what's happened is that ai has really come in artificial intelligence and started to reinvent how we do those processes in media but interestingly it started at the end of the process so the first things that ai really interfered with were the distribution and monetization and the most obvious example of that is recommendation algorithms which you see in your daily netflix feed so anyone who's looking up megan and harry today will know that um, they're, they're getting served that by netflix by virtue of a recommendation algorithm and that probably started in about 2007 seven or so when Netflix really had the big insight that they were going to personalize what people watched. And that was machine learning doing that. Um, about a decade later, you started to see AI tools creeping into the production. So a bit earlier in the process, um, sort of sort of helping you do the workflow, helping you do your editing, helping you do picture editing and so forth. And that's really taken place for the last three or four years. And then finally, really this year, 2022, you've seen AI tools start to get involved in the very element, the very sort of alchemic moment of creation of media, the development of the content itself through a dizzying variety of new tools which are coming out almost almost hourly at the moment and that's a really interesting crucible by which the way we think about making content is now being kind of boiled up like some steel in a foundry and 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 reissued as a completely new shape and that's a kind of what we're here to talk about today so Alex, can I step in there? Um, and, and I appreciate that we've got a very sophisticated audience, um, uh, but for the uninitiated, could you unpack a bit more for us um, you know, in, your, in your fantastic way of describing things, um, uh, which I'm sure will be peppered with lots of illustrations, uh, what really generative AI is and what it means for us in the media industry? Well, um, generative AI uh, relies upon uh, very large computer systems, which are sometimes this, literally the size of a football pitch in terms of that, that large number of servers, which have been devoted to studying all the content that is on the internet. So they quite literally have ingested as what they call training data, often 80% of all the content that's ever been put on the internet in open accessibility. So vast amounts of data, trillions of trillions of, of of computers worth of data, of data, if you put it in sort of very layman's terms. And those systems are then used to predictively suggest what is going to come next in a sequence of um, of pixels, if you're talking about a uh, image or words, if you're talking about uh, natural language processing. So, so essentially, the, the, all the content that's, that's been put on the internet has been used as training data to then inform systems which are able to predictively um, suggest new pieces of content based on what they've seen. And that, that is then played out across a number of tools which have been uh, invented really in the last couple of years um, by a whole new generation of companies uh, like a company called OpenAI, which is in San Francisco, or Midjourney, which is also in San Francisco, or Stable Diffusion, which is in London. And those tools are, are what lies behind all the fantastic gimmicky pieces of um, generative AI that you're seeing. And the way they do this is incredibly interesting. So they use something called generative adversarial networks, whereby a, a two systems kind of rival each other to, to attempt to create fake pieces of content in, in the case of one system, and then attempt to police whether that content is realistic in the case of another system. And those systems play against each other until a piece of content is created that is uh, that appears to be real. 
So if you look at the tools that are available now, all of them are kind of derived from those basic principles, uh, the use of the training data to inform the creation of new assets, which um, rather like um, Picasso's famous aphorism, great artist steel, uh, enables us to create a new Van Gogh, a new Rembrandt, a new Mozart, a new Nirvana song, or, uh, or a new piece of text about how to famously take a peanut butter sandwich out of a microwave in the style of the King James Bible, which is what someone did with um, OpenAI's ChatGPT last week. And, you know, in front of me, I have a list of some of the tools that have come out just this week. So that this is how fast it's moving. So we have SuperPaint, a drawing and image editing app uh, powered by AI, Tory, Toy Story Creator, bringing toys to life for bedtime studio uh, stories, Sendo, a, a Chrome extension that reads and crafts instant replies to your emails, Drama a new drive, a new tool for writers to co-write theatre and film use, using a, an, another system by DeepMind, which is a London-based um, AI company. So there's an explosion of these fantastic uh, tools which sit on top of those vast systems, that the relatively few vast systems actually, and are exploiting their power and their ingesting of content to create whole new ways of us thinking about co content creation. So, I mean, does that mean that we, uh, we've talked a lot about this spot on this podcast about at the moment, uh, content is dominated by talent, name talent. You need to have the, you know, the latest Shonda Rhimes. You need to have the latest uh, Matt Damon movie. Maybe not Matt Damon. Anyway, any of them. Uh, does that mean talent is, is, is over now? Is, is the AI going to write the next big blockbuster? Is going to write the next Disney animation movie? Or in fact, draw, write and draw the next Disney animation movie? Uh, what, where is the limit between AI and human creation? So I think that's a really interesting question, Claire. Um, I don't think, I haven't yet met anyone at least who thinks that talent is in danger, interestingly. And there's quite a good reason for that, which is that, as I mentioned, all these AI systems are doing is using the existing body of work, the kind of human knowledge as training data, and, and then sort of replaying it to us. What, what it's not doing is true creativity. And so if you look at, say, a, a sort of super original show like I May Destroy You, that show is a brand new piece of IP, a brand new piece of copyright that doesn't really doesn't really derive from a reiteration of anyone else's copyright. And so it'd be quite difficult to imagine an AI system reinventing that. I think what, what could happen and what is happening already is that AI is able to produce at great scale reiterations of existing models of content that we've got. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a fellow called Imad Mostak, who's an incredibly interesting guy who everyone should look up, who um, founded a company called Stable Diffusion or Stability AI, the company's called, in London, and you know raised $101 million about a month ago to um, take that company forward. And Stable Diffusion is a big platform in this space. And he said he thought that in about five years' time, he would be able to create you a new series of Game of Thrones just from a single verbal prompt that you might give. So I think we probably will see the opportunity for new episodes of Friends at scale or endless, endless new episodes of Friends at scale or endless new Agatha Christie novels or endless new Jane Austen or, uh, or Oscar Wilde plays or what have you. That's quite simple to do. And in fact, some of it could be done already. But what we probably won't see is human creativity supplanted, at least in the short term, by a, by a, by a computer coming up with genuinely credible uh, and, and fascinatingly new pieces of, pieces of work. If you haven't been on the Stable Diffusion website, please go because anybody listening here can put any sort of prompt and will the system will create an amazing image from three or four words. And it's, it's actually pretty, 
amazing and scary. I, it is true that it's moved on so much in the last few months from what I'd seen, even at the beginning of the year, that it's it's absolutely incredible. Pick up, um, uh, Alex, your uh, foray into copyright. Um, um, you would have noticed that, you know, in the last year, we've had some major issues with, say, NFTs and digital assets. Do you think the uh, infrastructure, the legal infrastructure, uh, is there ready in place for what looks like um, a very fast moving um, situation that we'll see ourselves in is if Imad can really truly recreate at the press of a button the Game of Thrones, what does that do for one existing copyright and then copyright in the future? And how does the legal regulatory environment really catch up? Yeah, thanks, Maureen. I don't think anyone in this space thinks that currently we have solved the problems around copyright in AI-created content. Qu quite the contrary. There's some, there's some really interesting challenges there. And, and governments, uh, AI regulators all, all across Europe and America are considering them. Um, if you um, look at, for example... The work of Greg Rutkowski, who's a, an artist, he, he's complained that that he he's the best, the most copied, the most reiterated artist on Stable Diffusion um, that, that Claire mentioned. So so when when people put prompts in, as Claire mentioned, they, they're most often using his name. He's kind of a science fictiony um, artist, and his point is that even though the the works that are created by people giving verbal prompts using his name are at some level not his work because they're, they're original prompts. The work looks exactly like his work and is trained on his work. And, and therefore, in, in effect, his copyright or his style is being borrowed. And lots of artists are up in arms about this. And it's quite interesting if you look across the internet, how many people, particularly in the art world, uh, are concerned about this because they're looking at their livelihoods being challenged. The copyright dimensions around who owns that piece of work are absolutely not solved at the moment. And so there'll be probably at least three or four candidates for who might own that work. So he might, Greg Mikowski might, uh, might claim that he owned the work on the basis that his day, training data had been used. The person who gave the prompt might claim that they own the work. The owner of the platform, whether that was Stable Diffusion or Mid Journey that had been used, might claim the work. Uh, and the owner of the, the computer hardware might also complain the work. So, so uh, claim the work. And, and we could probably go on even from there. So this is probably going to be one of the biggest issues in media in the 2020s is who owns the uh, ultimate output of these systems. Is it, you know, is it the person who had the idea? Is it the person who built the system? Or is it the person who, on whose training data the material was, was, you know, ultimately created? And that person who owns the training data, by the way, could be all of us because these systems have ingested all the faces available on the internet. So literally billions of faces, including absolutely likely yours, have been used such that when a metahuman is created, you know, a synthetic human, and there are many, many of those being created all the time, as people will know, um, they are at some level using your face as training data. In fact, so problematic is this that I talked to one of the biggest game companies in the world uh, recently and talked to their lawyer. And um, he said that they have to be incredibly careful now not to use any content that derives from any kind of generative AI system, because it might be the case that therefore that the ultimate game that they created at some level wasn't owned or provably ownable by them. And people might then use that as a reason to um, pirate the game and, and claim that there, there was no nothing illegal about that because the game itself wasn't owned by the computer games company in the first place. So this is really causing problems and it will continue to cause problems. Legislators, interestingly, are not all going down the same route. So, for example, in the US, 
it's quite hard to claim copyright um, on behalf of an AI system that, that essentially uh, that you can't you can't have inanimate objects having uh, copyright ownership. And there's a couple of famous cases there. You know, someone tried to claim an elephant as the author of a piece of art and were, were unable to do that legally. Whereas in the UK and the European Union, we're actually turning towards a, a situation where it may be that um, the AI systems can can own copyright or and even the kind of creative copyright and work. So this problem is not being solved yet. It's going to have to be solved, and it's going to be a really fundamental issue in the 2020s for all manner of content creators, from the from the single artist painting in a particular style, right through to the, the biggest media companies on earth and the, and the big series that they create using some generative AI techniques. It's really interesting because it reminds me of the early days, well, actually of, of maybe music sampling and also of YouTube when people started putting mashups of things on YouTube and who owns the copyright? Is it the music? Is it the images? It's obviously much, much simpler then, but even then it did slow down the... For large media companies, it slowed down their pickup of, of platforms such as YouTube because they were so scared of doing it in the wrong way. Uh, it's interesting that you, we've talked about quite a few of the companies that you've, you follow, Alex, and I'm not hearing Meta. I'm not hearing Google. I'm not hearing some of the names that seem to be investing a lot or Microsoft, Activision. I mean, it's, it seems to be a whole new playing field in terms of players. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Meta, um, since you mentioned them, Claire, are are quite big players in this space, and they've done quite a lot of. Uh, they've published quite a lot of original research, some of it at the quite theoretical level about the AI creativity that they've um, done. And they, they, for example, well ahead on text to video, which we haven't talked about yet, but which is the same thing as the text to picture, except that obviously you're creating video. And they have there are some superb examples that Meta have created. You know, a dog flying through the sky with funky goggles on. There's one famous one that they've done, or a Labrador eating. Um, an ice cream on a beach and these kind of pretty good videos really that are just being created from text. So Meta have done a lot of original research. What they haven't done is openly uh, made openly accessible their uh, creative engines. So they've kept that under wraps and Google are reportedly in, are in a similar position. And so on the one level, that's making those two sort of mega companies look like they're behind. But I suspect they're probably not behind. They're just simply not releasing the tools. And one of the reasons they're not releasing them is a pretty major security challenge, which is that um, you've probably heard of that term deep fake, uh, which is the kind of dystopian term that always gets trotted out when we talk about AI content. But there is a real risk that if you open up these systems, these very powerful creative engines to the world at large, people will start putting in prompts that are going to uh, cause problems. And they, they could be problems along the lines of um, invasive content, adult content, and what have you. They could also be problems along the lines of national security deep fakes. So, you know, fake videos of tanks being shot or fake videos of, of the president, uh, you know, capitulating in a war or whatever it might be. And we have already seen some early examples of those deep fakes. So it may be that Google and Meta are, are up to speed with this. It probably is the case, actually, but they're being quite discerning about the ethical dimensions of when to release their projects and how to release them because they're well aware that once these tools are out in the wild, however much restriction you try and put on them, there will be some real challenges about, about controlling the content. Equally, um, th there's an interesting sort of side industry now starting to come up whereby um, people are creating tools capable of spotting synthetic content and deep fakes. So there's several in the verbal field and there are also some in the visual field and Meta are leading that. To, um, so they've actually run competitions around that. So there's a, there's a kind of 
poacher and gamekeeper situation evolving where the generative AI systems are creating ever more sophisticated fakes and new systems are being designed to spot those ever more sophisticated fakes in real time. And if you talk to people in the national security world, they will tell you that this is one of the biggest challenges they have for the 2020s, which is how to spot synthetic content and how to stop it being used for nefarious purposes by bad actors of whatever kind. And what do you think uh, the applications might be? We've talked a little bit about media. It's pretty obvious in terms of, well, it's pretty obvious that you can imagine immediately the sort of applications that, that this can create in, in animation, in production, in writing, etc. What about uh, other creative industries? What about advertising, for instance? Is, is, is AI already being used in advertising? Oh, to a huge degree, AI is being used in advertising. So, in fact, advertising and marketing were were very early on to uh, the distribution end of that equation that I mentioned in terms of AI AI disposition onto um, onto uh, algorithmic recommendation systems. So, most obviously, probably in things like the YouTube algorithm and the uh, Facebook as as was uh, algorithms and the TikTok algorithms, whereby whereby your predilections are uh, used to inform you with advertising that's ever more segmented and targeted down to you. So they've been doing that for years. Um, actually, now in the advertising world, not only has that kind of ad tech got more and more sophisticated, and it's absolutely AI-driven, has been for years, but now people are starting to use AI-created assets of all kinds. And there have been some really famous examples. So for, there was a Brazilian uh, pet food shop that used a facial recognition system to supposedly, uh, it's called Pets, P-A-T-Z, to supposedly um, recognize the expressions of dogs when they were looking at the computer screen so that the dogs could go e-commerce shopping to get the toy that they particularly wanted. That's a famous case. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Deutsche, um, the, German, the German rail company, um, did a superb campaign during COVID where they um, used uh, visual recognition to uh, find places in Germany that looked like the most famous places on earth. So they, they sort of put the pictures of the Grand Canyon in and then came out with the German place that looked most like it. And so the Statue of Liberty, the same, and some bridge across the gorge and what have you. And they actually found some amazingly similar places within Germany that looked like world-famous landmarks. And then they used that to market the idea of taking a holiday by rail in Germany and, and the, the small carbon footprint that that would be versus taking a flight to some exotic foreign destination. And it was an incredibly successful campaign. So yes, all across advertising and marketing, people are using this. And the real holy grail for them is to kind of exploit the psychological trope that people tend to uh, buy stuff from uh, people who look like them. So that, that's just an interesting, you, you, you may not like it, but that, that, that's an interesting psychological trope. And people who look very like them, and there's some research, I think, even to show that they, people will buy something most likely from an opposite sex version of their own face, for example. And so the, the, the tools of generative AI are being used now in advertising to create synthetic humans, you know, fake humans, which look ultra realistic, which are most capable of, of personally selling to you the thing that you most want yeah, without you realizing it. And so you're going to see a rather dystopian world in the not too distant future, whereby each person is, is facing some kind of marketing avatar that is some kind of version of themselves um, as a way of making them most, most tend to buy whatever item it is. So yes, yeah, so quite across advertising and marketing from Amazon e-commerce right through to really quite crazy new new uh, content creation developments you're seeing AI of all kinds. I, I just have to tell this story at this point, which is that uh, apparently there's this, there's this trend on the internet for, for people to go on their significant other's 
laptop and Google thinks they want so that their uh, significant other will be served ads uh, and actually buy them things for Christmas uh, that they will actually want. And I think that's such a beautiful way of using <laughs> targeting technology. Um, I've decided that I was going to do that. Anyway. Also, sort of actors and uh, are getting involved with this in both good and bad ways. So it's sort of the... The good way is that an actor's lifespan can be attended, uh, extended indefinitely. So uh, Morgan Freeman's licensed his voice to, for Darth Vader such that they can use the synthetic version of that you know, forever. And that, that's pretty fun. On the other hand, there are actors' unions saying, you're using our voices now in advertising when we didn't even give the voice. So, so, so you, an actor might voice an advert for one product and find that they're being used for another product without them having known about it. And so this, again, throws up huge numbers of ethical issues. And one of the most fascinating things about AI is everywhere you look, there's a great application that brings a brand new, exciting ethical dimension that you'd never even thought of before. And so, so, Alex, uh, this may sound contrarian, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. So, you know, part of uh, uh, one of the pillars or one of the tenets of media and the media industry is to make money. So that monetization um, column, uh, it all sounds like gimmicky and great fun and, you know, really interesting stuff visually. Um, and of course, some of the industries included, as you say, advertising is is really looking into this. But, but, but is it revolutionising, you know, our industries? And, and if so, who is making money? And what does this all look like in, I'm not going to say five years' time, because that's too, that's too long, uh, in a year to two years' time? It's a, it's a really good question, Maureen. And I think, I think the answer is some people are making money now, but a lot of people are in that phase, uh, which you'll, probably, you'll remember from the kind of early days of social media, where the tools were being created and kind of blitz scaled, to use the Reed Holtzman, Reed Holtzman phrase, without people attaching a specific business model to them. Do you remember the time when, when people said Facebook couldn't make money, for example, and then it once became one of the most successful advertising businesses in the history of the world? I think we're at that phase now. So these companies are going for scale rather than revenue. But actually, if you, if you do look across the kind of firmament of media, in pretty much every category, people are already using AI tools to make money. So, so, so the recommendation algorithms would be the most obvious one where by, by, by serving up the perfect cocktail of, of programs to your homepage, your personal homepage on Netflix or Disney Plus, your, your attention to those platforms is maximized and therefore your churn is minimized and your customer lifetime value is as large as they can make it. And that's been around for 15 years now. So that's a kind of money-making endeavor. If you're referring to the more kind of generative content side of it, I think it's much earlier days and we're not there yet, but there are signs it's going to happen. So for example, in the newspaper industry, um, uh, a number of different uh, news organizations are using generative AI to write sports copy and uh, business copy, stock market reports, for example, the more mechanistic side of content creation, if you will. And they're pretty good, actually. And that, that enables them to obviously not pay journalists, which you obviously may think is a good or a bad thing, depending on which perspective you're taking, and uh, therefore increase their profits. And I think as these tools become ever more sophisticated, you'll find that that kind of... Um, sort of job replacement creeps up the value chain at the same time you'll also find that new jobs are being created at the other end the opposite end of the value chain where you're getting ever more uh creative ways of uh, providing that prompt that claire mentioned earlier and you're finding people using it for example for virtual studio creation and backdrops of vast fast productions and so you will find both on the cost saving dimension and on the 
expansive content generation dimension, new and exciting ways of, of creating value, which may not be quite the same thing as profit in the short term, but in the long term will probably amount to much the same. So that's interesting because a few years ago, somebody told me, and I, I have to say, I found it hard to believe her. She said, uh, don't tell your children to become programmers. We have enough programmers. Programming is not going to be an issue anymore. You tell them to go to do English majors because what we'll need are writers to write those prompts. I mean, would you agree with that? <laughs> that's an interesting point. I mean, I've got to be honest, I don't know that many that many out of work coders, to be honest. <laughs> but interestingly enough, I also don't I also don't know that many out of work producers at the moment. Um, you know, the, the, the British TV, since we're in Britain, the British mm -hmm. TV industry and film industry have been in a period of extraordinary boom recently. And, you know, if you talk to any producer of major TV shows, they'll tell you that they can't get the staff. And, and, and yet those, those shows are using a lot of AI tools already, and particularly in the creation of virtual worlds, for example, if you take The Mandalorian or something, you know, or, or, or House of the Dragon, you know, the, a lot of those backdrops are created, you know, using AI tools and Unreal Engine and all these modern you know, facets of our, of our, our media toolkit. So, so I'm not sure I have a position to take on, on whether you should study English language <laughs> or computer coding. I think the answer might be both, actually. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, fascinatingly, the, the two are merging. So one of the great skills of this GPT chatbot, which came out last week from OpenAI, which I'm sure lots of people will have played with, is you can put computer code in and have it come out, describe in English what it is, and you can put English in and it will write computer code for you. So either way, you can translate it. And then someone, someone I work with at Oxford, uh, a guy called Jason Bell discovered that he could get it to explain computer code to him in the language of a pirate. So he had this this system just just talking to him about ahoy matey, this code is designed to do so forth like that. And it was it was doing it brilliantly as well. So I think that that probably the case is that is that the perfect media company and employee in the future will have some kind of intuitive understanding of how code code works and also some brilliantly insightful understanding of the fact that what humans are always good at and have always been good at is unique and, and charismatic storytelling. And that will probably continue. And so I think I would say to your friends, child, go for it, do whatever you want to do, to be honest. And, and Alex, um, given that we've sort of touched on um, this area of production, virtual production, you know, the green rooms um, and so on, mm. um, can, can you, I, I just saw this morning the announcement of Amazon Studios opening up their new virtual production department and stage set. So that looks interesting. And I'm sure Unreal Engine would be, would be an active participant there, I think, I think. Um, but staying with virtual production and the virtual worlds, um, does this all cross over into the metaverse and can we make a distinction between the two and what on earth is the metaverse? Yeah, thanks, Maureen. Well, I mean, I think, I think this isn't the same thing as the metaverse is the answer. Um, the, the, the slightly tricky dimension of that is I'm not totally sure anyone knows what the metaverse is. So it's, it's quite hard to say something isn't something when you don't know what the thing that you don't know what it isn't is, if you see what I mean. Um, but no, I don't think this is quite the same as the metaverse. Nonetheless, if you look at, for example, Meta's work, there's a very close correlation between what they're doing in AI and what they're doing in the metaverse. And, they are, and, and the reality is that they're both using um, sort of computer calculation to create worlds. And so it kind of makes sense. So, and you're using the same chips as well, these, these famous NVIDIA games chips that are used a lot in AI and also in world creation in the metaverse. And in, and in the video games industry as well, there's, there's lots of use of AI tools to create virtual worlds. And those virtual worlds, depending on what definition of the metaverse, 
metaverse you take um, are, are a bit, you know, a bit metaverse-y. Um, but I, I don't know. I, don't, I think we probably shouldn't confuse AI and the metaverse. And I think maybe a better way of thinking about AI is instead of it being a sort of futuristic world that we're creating artificially, it's actually a great way of kind of just plugging in a new tool to everything we've already done on Earth. So there's a famous quote from a sort of a Stanford professor called Andrew Ng, which is AI is the new electricity. I think that's a really way, good way of thinking about it is that whether you're talking about um, sort of alchemy, you know, algebra or zoology or anything else in the alphabet, anywhere in between, there's something and some stuff that AI can do that will help you get that done quicker and more efficiently. And, and that's probably the way I would go with it. And so I think I probably wouldn't miss the exotic wouldn't mix the exotic and slightly fantastical notion of the metaverse with the quite practical implementations that we're seeing in AI, which are, you know, which, which are very mundane at many levels. So for example, they are, how fast does a person type their name when they're filling in an insurance application form? And that, that a machine learning will be able to tell you is, is as good a predictor as any as whether someone will eventually use that insurance. Um, or does someone have a Hotmail address? You know, that's probably, that's a very good predictor of um, whether their houses like to get burgled and so forth. You know, there's some very strange things that AI is able to spot statistically out in the world. There was a famous one in recruitment where um, a, a very major company that we've all heard of ran a, ran a, a recruitment campaign uh, to, to hire a ton of new staff. And they, they said to a you know, machine uh, AI system, look, can you just look up, effectively, they said to it, can you look at all the people we've ever hired and read their CVs and come back and find some more like that? But don't buy us for uh, for, for sex and race, obviously, for gender and race, because we, we obviously we don't want to be biased. And the, the system kept spitting out people with exactly the same privileges as all the previous ones they'd had, and they couldn't work out why. And they went back and sort of analyzed it, and they found out that the system had, had worked out that the best predictor of whether you got a job or not in the past had been whether you were called Jared or whether you played field hockey. And it was just using those as kind of guides to how to hire people in the future. And I think that's, that's kind of where we are with AI, is that it's an incredibly clever tool but it's um, rather impenetrable at times, rather sort of black box and rather incapable of having any ethical content unless you put it in there. So we need to be very scrupulous and careful about these things. And I would, I would sort of say, let's, let's apply quite a mundane real world lens to it rather than worrying about this metaverse thing that many people don't think exists and may never exist. I think that's a really key point, isn't it? That AI and machine learning in general is, is only as good as whatever you put into it. Uh, but but the, the the goal for AI is that at some point it can start, I think, if I understand it correctly, inventing things beyond what you've put into it. And then it becomes this scientific, science fiction trope of the evil machine overload, <laughs> overlord that takes over from everything and, you know, puts us in the matrix. And is, is that happening? Is, is the AI mm. going to take over? Oh. Two things. It's, first of all, on the first point, the, the, on, the, on the kind of ethical dimension and the, the, the bias in the training data, there's a fantastic uh, woman called Joy Buelanwimi, who's at uh, MIT in America, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she's done a lot of work pointing out that there's a huge um, um, bias in, in the training data that all these systems have been trained on. And we need to be very careful about that because, for example, it will... Um, produce images of women who, as they get older, tend to look like men. So, it, so when you create synthetic humans, you find that women start to look like men as they get older and no, no one can figure out what the reason. And the reason is because of all the women on the internet, they're all young. And so, and so the internet thinks that old people are men. 
So, and that means the train data think that as well. Um, on the on the on the content creation side, the kind of metaphysical will, will AI become a creator? Well, there's this theoretical tipping point where artificial narrow intelligence (ANI), which is what we've been talking about here, which is AI systems which are very specific to one task, you know, to, to play chess or to look look at insurance claims or to 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 edit podcasts or whatever it might be well that will gradually graduate to or perhaps have a sort of big bang moment where it becomes artificial general intelligence which is a system which can teach itself without any prompting to um do do any task it under it seeks to undertake and we're not there yet and most there's a lively debate amongst kind of proper computer scientists about whether we will ever get there. Some think we're only five years away. Some, some things we'll never get there. And then there is this kind of futuristic idea that, that at some point AGI will become so much more clever and powerful than us, you know, 3,000 times more intelligent than a human being or whatever, that we will just become their pets and that they will just use us for entertainment. And actually that human created content will become a relatively rare and exotic thing, like a sort of fine wine on the top shelf, uh, you know, in a, in a vintner's as opposed to the, the wine that you buy at Tesco. And I don't, I don't know whether we're going to get there or not. I'm not sure whether we would desire to get there. Um, but I, I'm, I, what I do know is we're definitely not there at the moment. And I don't think there's any sign. I, I'm yet to see it of content, uh, content that's truly original and scalable being made by an AI system. I think, I think that you can find, you can find AIs like Synalytics that are capable of looking at scripts and telling you which ones were likely to have succeeded in the past based on the entire database of the box office performance of all movies. But there's not yet a piece of software that can write a better script than a good script writer can. And if you look across the different uh, segments of media, the media industry, which of which of the segments do you think is embracing and really, um, you know, putting uh, people talent behind figuring out what AI can do for them, what can augment their businesses today? Um, you spoke about advertising earlier, but which of the other segments do you think are really truly get it? Well, I think that's a good, really good question, Lauren. I think that um, games, particularly, are embracing it, and, and I think you're seeing it in the in the sort of non-playing characters becoming much more sophisticated in games, so that you can stop someone in the street whilst you're playing Grand Theft Auto and have a conversation with them, and they will have their own individual personality and they'll be able to engage with you. And I think that that's moving fast in games. I think within the video world, obviously, the distribution technologies of uh, streaming are have heavy air integration have always had it, both on the bandwidth management and on on the actual recommendation engines and there are different recommendation styles which diff which organizations are using so whilst netflix uses recommendations of people like you for example as do youtube the bbc would tend to use recommendations driven much more by much more by a top-down system which which tries to recommend people stuff that they haven't looked at before and not take them down a rabbit hole quite deliberately i think it might be fair to say that the creation side of tv particularly is yet to really grasp ai it's quite noticeably noticeable that when i've done sessions for kind of broadcasters uh, i've always had these kind of excited calls afterwards from kind of researchers from production companies going oh we want to do an ai idea well no one's done one yet and it's true no one has done one yet and but i think that the tv entertainment particularly has been looking for the big paradigm shift um which would be akin to the kind of balloon debate shift that around the year just the early 2000s when big brother and survivor came out and that paradigm has been essentially run for 20 years and it's still being run you know with traitors or i'm a celebrity now 20 years later i think when tv does find a new paradigm shift a completely new way of envisaging entertainment it'll probably come from ai and i wouldn't be surprised if it comes from something called the turing test which is um a sort of 
COD test divided by, devised by the mathematician Alan Turing, um, who you famously, as I'm sure you know, was the guy who cracked the Enigma code in the Second World War, then went on to become a sort of major thinker in AI. And he, he sort of posited this world where ever ever computer can, can, can create a, 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 a personality that in conversation you don't know is a computer, then it's passed the Turing test. And I suspect that if you, if you applied that to, say, blind date and gave people three choices of dates to go on, of which two were... Um, you know, computers, synthetic, and one was real, and they win the game by finding the real one. I think that kind of thing is probably where we'll get to with AI in TV, and I think that hasn't happened yet, but I would bet you pretty good money that in a couple of years, someone has got a global format which uses synthetic humans in that kind of way, and I think that'll probably be the big hit of the 2020s. And do you see, just to hold on to that, do you see the um, AI being used to predict, say, you know, a film hit or a TV hit? Have you seen that's any of already, that yet in operation? That's absolutely, yeah. Yes, that's absolutely being done. All the major media companies have that. Um, Disney has its own system. As I mentioned, that system Synalytic in Hollywood. There are others. Mm-hmm. There, there are various systems in music as well. Um, what they're doing is, is nothing very sophisticated. What they're doing is essentially taking, the, as I said, the training data set of all box office results ever and the story structure and character dimensions of those, you know, the scripts, in essence, of those those projects. And then they're benchmarking any new script that you input into it against that training data. So on the one hand, you could say, well, that would, that should accurately predict the, the future success of a piece of content because we've checked it against all previous pieces of content. On the other hand, you could say that sh- that could almost, by definition, not predict the future success of a piece of content because of course the greatest paradigm shifts have been the biggest hits so titanic wasn't really like a previous movie neither was jaws neither was star wars you know neither was um super mario which is the single most uh, lucrative uh, entertainment franchise of all time and so you could argue that in order to have a really big hit in entertainment by definition you must not just reiterate the training data of the past and so it could be possible to say that ai will not be capable of predicting hits on that basis if you can see the sort of philosophical so twist in that. Does that make sense to you, Maureen? Yes, it does. It does. It does. Because I just wondered whether or not if Disney were to say that was predicted as a hit and therefore it was a hit. And that'd be interesting to see if that was disclosed or ever disclosed. Or could be disclosed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But of course, I mean, you know, c- companies have always been running these kind of algorithms, you know, in the past, you know, right back to Hollywood in the 1920s, probably, you know, we Charlie Chaplin does well. So let's hire, let's have another Charlie Chaplin film. That's the same algorithm that you'd be running now. It's just that it's done in a less sophisticated and offline way. But but again, I think, you know, I was listening to a program this morning about Citizen Kane. You know, Citizen Kane is arguably one of the greatest movies of all time, but it wasn't like any other movie. So it'd be quite hard to say a computer could have come up with Citizen Kane based on the training data set of previous great movies. I always think this is missing the point, actually, this this whole can it create a hit, because I think for most media companies and back in the 20s that was and 30s, that was the case as well. Yes, they'll have one hit per year, but really where they want to make their money is in the sort of middling, doing quite well kind of movies that don't cost quite as much to to produce and that's where yeah that's where ai can really help is to say what what a, a relatively successful christmas movie looks like is this uh and then turn five of those and and do okay or what a relatively successful game show is you know is this and it doesn't have to immediately become uh the price right it could be one of the you know 30 other game shows that are doing okay and i think i i kind of feel like that's in music it's the same you're never going to find the next taylor swift but you might find a taylor swift me too that does actually well enough for this for the label and, and is is worth keeping around 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a really, really good point, Claire. And I think that, that, you know, I think one of the professions that probably is in danger, for example, is library music, the kind of the kind of ersatz music that you hear in the background in gyms or on sort of, you know, sort of uh, sort of workout videos or what have you. That that kind of music is absolutely capable of being created by AI and already is. So, so and, and then the same might go for the, the end sort of entry level TV. So whilst I think it's unlikely that, that, that um, AI is going to come up with a new hit drama series, it might be able to come up with another thousand episodes of changing rooms for you that would be quite easy to do because it's very formulaic and it's just a kind of design and a couple of new characters and i think i think you may find the media splitting between the kind of synthetic endless media which is a new phrase that's sort of come up in america and then the kind of original work and and that's the sort of hbo sort of trope you know and i think that's a really fascinating thing moment that we might be at and not not just in games but at tv but also games music podcasts you name it you know it's fascinating uh we are running out of time it's it was so fascinating i want to say that if this was interesting alex's new book is called media management and artificial intelligence understanding media business models in the digital age it is available at all Good bookshops and also online, obviously. It will probably be recommended to you by some AI uh, tool now that you've listened to this podcast, but we'll also put a link in the description of the episode. This was incredible, Alex. Before we go, uh, and I'll go back to what Maureen was saying, if you had to make three or four predictions, let's say three, go on, three predictions for the next 12 months in, in, in its sort of intersection between AI and media, what would they be? Okay, so none of these is going, is going to be very original, but I'm going to give you them anyway. So I think the first one is the, the creation of a generative AI department in every major media company. Actually, that's not my idea at all. That's something Imad Mostat from Stable Diffusion told me he thought would happen. And I totally agree with him. I think it's probably already happening. So I think every major media comp- company will have a, have a department whose role is generative AI. That's the first one. Second one would be the um, rapid growth of synthetic imagery in all manner of, of advertising content. And so interior design, e-commerce, models, models for Instagram feeds, the clothes for the, those models, all of that is entirely possible today with, with, with various uh, of the tools that I've talked about. And so I think the, the content that you see on a kind of basic level in e-commerce and in your daily internet life will increasingly be synthetic. And then the third one is, is probably the growth of uh, synthetic video. So yeah, I think over the next three to six months, you're going to see a whole load of text to video uh, products rolled out where you can just give it, you can give a text prompt and back will come a piece of video. And I think that will be truly revolutionary there'll be apps for it and in the same way that everyone's thrilling themselves with this week by using lenser to make themselves look young and beautiful so they will be doing the same with videos very shortly and and the, i think those three are probably probably pretty safe bets well we're already all young and beautiful so obviously that doesn't apply to us but thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> Wow, superb stuff. I've just been listening in awe because uh, it's everything I love, media and data. Um, um, just before we wrap up, Alex, when we were preparing, you talked about something. Uh, you said data pre-2021, by the way, folks, that's last year, uh, and post-2021, uh, and there being some sort of division in those categorizations of data. In yeah. That, I don't know how you mm. described it really well, that 2021 data is in some way more reliable than, than that post-2021, which I found terrifying. 
Yeah, so I had a conversation with a um, Silicon Valley firm that work a lot in national security. So I have a lot of guests on the Oxford AI program that we run, and I had someone who did that. And they had they had a kind of five-dimensional data map of Ukraine in real time or able to read the output of every Russian mobile phone conversation that was going on in real time, whatever it was. But they were saying that the biggest challenge is now knowing which of the data that they're looking at on the internet. And by the way, they had ingested the whole internet, if you can imagine, into a computer system. Um, they were saying that the problem is that now that you have, they have to split data into two groups, they have to split it into pre-2020 and post-2020. And because post-2020 may be synthetic, it may be created by a computer. And, it, and scarily, it may be competed, um, created not by a computer system that they know, and I've mentioned some of the famous ones like the OpenAI one or, or whatever, but, but by um, systems owned by foreign governments that they don't know. And so what they're concerned with is trying to split out the synthetic content and then try and see the watermarks, if you will, of systems both that they know and that they don't know. And that, and that the, the disinformation or the information wars of the 21st century, which we haven't really talked about today, but easily could have done in the context of media, will be conducted between rival computer systems creating synthetic content for nefarious purposes on the one hand and trying to spot the opposition's synthetic content on the other. And we can see just the beginnings of that in the information war around Ukraine. Um, but I, I think a, a lot of people in that space, some of whom I've uh, talked to, say that, that that is going to become the real challenge of the 2020s is knowing when your enemy is using synthetic content. Fascinating. And just finally, Claire, for, for the for the um, decision that kids have to make as to which um, path to follow, uh, our, one of our leading data scientists uh, at ADL um, has a PhD both in language uh, and in computing. So that makes him our NLP go-to guy. And he's already doing some extraordinary things in the world of commerce. Um, I think that's it. We've probably run out of time. Um, Alex, uh, Dr. Alex Connock, thank you ever so much. Media Management and Artificial Intelligence is out on Rutledge. Uh, came out November 2022. Uh, I will be reading it. But for now, uh, I just have to say thanks again. And uh, goodbye, Claire. Goodbye, Maureen. Goodbye, Alex. Uh, and see the first two of you next time. Bye for now.